0: If you do live in the North Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to join us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. Our desire is that God would use this to encourage you with the hope we have in Jesus. Can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27. We're continuing in that Psalm today. Our, our brother Jermaine was able to lead us the last time we gathered through the first uh, six verses of the Psalm, but we're going to be continuing in that Psalm today, verses seven to the end of the Psalm, seven to verse fourteen. Uh, the title of today's message is "Wait on the Lord." Wait on the Lord. See, the Bible tells us over and over again the value of waiting on the Lord, that there's benefit to it, that it's good to wait on the Lord. There's a number of verses. Psalm 37 says this. It's going to come up on the screen, and even if it doesn't, we have it right here. Psalm 37, um, or Luke 22, it should be Psalm 37, verse 34. It says, wait for the Lord and keep his way. And he will exalt you to inherit the land you will look on when the wicked are cut off. And then Lamentations 3, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And then Isaiah 40, verse 31, a very familiar verse to many of us. But they who wait for the Lord... Shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. See, there's value and benefit to waiting on the Lord. But as people, we're pretty bad at waiting. See, Amazon has a two-day delivery guarantee, yet we get anxious and worried and threaten to call customer service if it gets closer to a week. See, when our phones say that they need to update, we, we push it off as long as we can because we're afraid to be without access to our phones for the, for the few minutes that it takes for it to update. And the same goes with our laptops and our computers. Or if you're like my, my son, Shepherd, those two minutes that it takes for instant oatmeal to cook are the most terrible minutes of the day. There's crying nonstop. We're bad at waiting as people. But then there's real things that we're waiting for. There's real things that we're waiting for and that we've been waiting for for a long time, especially during this season. Things like we're, we're waiting to regather. We're, we're waiting to be able to, some of us, return to work, especially with this new lockdown. We're worried about finances. We want to return to work. We're waiting for that. We're waiting to be able to see the lonely, elderly loved one who we haven't been able to see for a very long time. Or perhaps we're that lonely one that's waiting for for the ability to meet with other people in a meaningful way. We're waiting for that wedding date that keeps getting pushed further and further as things keep coming up because Because life is unknown right now. Or that engagement that seems to be around the corner but never comes. Or we're waiting for that baby in the womb. Those nine months can be long. Or we're waiting for the virus to be over. We're waiting for that post-COVID time. See, waiting can be hard. And in the passage we're looking at today, verses 7 to 14, David is in that middle area between expectation and hope and actuality and delivery of those promises and those hopes. David's in the middle. He is waiting. See earlier in Psalm 27 and Jermaine led us through this passage the last time we gathered. David's one thing is to be in the presence of God with the people of God in the temple of God. But he's still waiting. In verses 7 to 14, that that desire has yet to be fulfilled. See, in verses 7 to 14, David is waiting, and in his waiting, he shows us how we should wait and why we should wait on the Lord. How we should wait and why we should wait on the Lord. And that's what this passage is all about, waiting. Look at verse 14 with me. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David repeats it twice because it's important. That's the point of this passage. Wait for the Lord. See, what the Holy Spirit wants us to see through this psalm is that waiting isn't a passive thing that we do. Like the parent that mindlessly scrolls through social media while they're waiting for their kid to finish taking a bath. And that illustration is true of me. That's that's what I do sometimes. See, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that waiting isn't passive. Instead, the goodness of God, and that's the big takeaway today, the goodness of God is the fuel for waiting that is active and enduring. The goodness of God is the fuel for waiting that's active and enduring. See, my goal for this message today is to help us understand God's goodness, what we just finished singing, the goodness of Jesus. We, we want to understand God's goodness so that we can actively wait, not just passively, actively wait, but also wait with endurance on the Lord. And so as we look to the passage today, Let's pray together and ask for the Spirit to be with us. And Father, we come to you this morning thankful for your word, that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you continue to speak to your people, continue to encourage us through your word. And so we pray that you'd be with us as we look to this psalm this morning, that your spirit would delight to make known to us the truths contained within it and direct our eyes and our hearts towards you. Help us this morning, we pray. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's turn to Psalm 27. I'm going to read from the beginning, uh, verse 1, just to, just to place us back in the larger context. Starting at verse 1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies." All around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. And then, verse 7, where we're going to be today Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, and be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. And my heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me, turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then verse 14 again. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So David is waiting and in this passage he tells us how we should wait and why we should wait. See, we can wait on the Lord, how, by crying out to the Lord in prayer. Our first point, by crying out to the Lord in prayer. The prayer that David makes in verses 7 to 12 is often seen as a, a complete contrast to what has come earlier in verses 1 to 6. See, if, you, if you've read it, and Jermaine's led us through that, that there's great confidence that David has in who his God is. Is in verses 1 to 6. And then when you read verses 7 to 12, it almost seems like despair, a crying out to the Lord. There's a couple things that we can learn from that right away. First is that the Psalms show us the humanity of the authors. See, the authors of the Psalms were were men and women just like us. They experienced highs and lows back to back. See, Jermaine t- uh, told us about, a little bit about the background of this psalm the last time we gathered, that we don't actually know the exact moment when David wrote this psalm, but there's a whole host of things that he could be referring to. See, David was on the run from Saul. Throughout his whole life, he was fighting against the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. But then he was also later in his life on the run from his own son, Absalom. See, David could be referring to a whole host of things, but he's, that's, that's what the psalm shows us, that David faces those highs and lows just like we do. The, the psalms are honest with us. But the second thing that this shows us is that verses 7 to 14 happen after verses 1 to 6. They happen in the context of David's great confidence in the Lord. See, David can pray like this. David can bring these requests to God because of how confident he is in him. See, David knows that God is big, that God is powerful, that God is good. And so he can bring these requests to God and that God can handle those requests. See, God is big in David's eyes, so he's able to bring everything to God. Like a a clogged water line leads to a a faucet that produces a weak flow of water, A, a small and a deficient view of God produces weak prayers. But oppositely, a big view of God, a right understanding of who he is, a a real confidence in who he is to us produces boldness in our prayers because we believe that he is powerful, that he is sovereign, and that he is good to us. And one of the one of the ways that we can grow a big view of who God is is by reading books about who God is. And, and I want to recommend one of them to you, and it's, and it's this book, None Greater, by Matthew Barrett: The Undomesticated Attributes of God. See, Matthew Barrett in this book goes through the various attributes of God, like his incomprehensibility, his infinitude, his assayity, his immutability, his impassibility, his eternity, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. He goes through all of these attributes just to build up in our eyes a God who is bigger than we actually think he is. See, when we have this big view of God, the hardest of circumstances... In our lives, the hardest of our circumstances and situations, when they're put next to God, even though that they're real, even though those hard things are real and difficult, they're small compared to a God who is ginormous. It's like stacking pennies next to Mount Everest. It doesn't compare. God is so powerful and he is so good that he's able to handle the things that we bring to him. A big view of God means that we don't hold anything back from him. And so that's what David's doing. David's able to be honest with the Lord and bring all of his requests to him because he's confident in who God is. So David prays with this boldness, prays in light of this confidence, and he actively waits by praying. And he prays for two things. Look at verse seven Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. See, David, like calling customer service about a late delivery, is asking the Lord to answer his previous prayers. Look at verse 8. You have said, seek my face. And then my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. David is saying, I've done what you've asked. So so answer me. I've done what you've told me in your words. So answer my prayers. See, David is able to come to God with this honesty and boldness and trust because he knows who God is. We shouldn't forget verse 1. See, the Lord isn't just a light. The Lord isn't just a means of salvation or a stronghold. He's David's light. He's my light my salvation he's the stronghold of my life David knows who God is to him and so he cries out with boldness and trust saying answer me see there's a couple lessons for us here even just in those two verses that one we can pray God's word there's actual power in praying God's word and his promises see David has stored up God's word in his heart. And so in times of trouble, he prays God's own promises to him. See, when we pray God's word and his promises, it's an expression of trust and appeal to God to be faithful and consistent with himself. It's saying, God, you've you've said this. And so answer accordingly. There's power in praying God's word. But then too, more importantly, and David shows us by example here, That we can pray for God to answer. We can pray for God to answer. So we don't just come to him with the needs that we have. We don't just come to him with our, our list of requests. But we actually appeal for him to answer us. And sometimes, sometimes God will delay in answering our prayers. And that's because he's after our perseverance in prayer. He's after our perseverance in prayer, our maturity. He wants us to keep coming after him. He wants us to mature over the provision of the things that we think we need. See, God knows best, and so we trust him. And God isn't bothered like the judge in the parable of the persistent widow when we keep coming to him with our requests. But instead, it's like, a, it's like a parent whose child finally gives up trying to tie their own shoes and comes to their parent and asks for help. It honors the Lord when we come to him because it's an expression of dependence and trust. And we know that he is good and he will answer us. And because we trust that he knows everything, because he knows everything, he knows better than us, So we trust him with whatever answer he gives. So David prays and he prays for God to answer. And look how persistent he is. Look at verse 9. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Cast me not away. Forsake me not. David is repeatedly saying to the Lord, don't forget me. Answer my prayers. That's the first thing David prays for that the Lord would answer his prayers. The second thing David prays for is he asks God for guidance and protection. Look at verse 11 and 12. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. See, when David is asking God to teach him his ways, he isn't asking the Lord for new commandments to follow. See, David is asking the Lord to show him his way out of trouble and wisdom to walk before his enemies rightly. Why? It's because look, look at verse 11. The word translated as enemies actually in the original Hebrew carries the meaning of those who who sit there watching, they're lurking, they want to see when you slip and fall so that they can attack. And how do they attack? Look at verse 12. False witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. They attack him with his words. So David's enemies are lurking and watching in the shadows, waiting for David to slip up so that they can accuse him and and bear false witness against him. And so David asks for, for guidance and wisdom. See, as Christians, we need to know that someone is always watching our lives whether it be those around us, our our neighbors, our coworkers, other Christians, someone is always watching us, seeing how we conduct ourselves, how we live our lives, how we respond to the news, how we respond to one another. See, there's a lot that's going on right now that's not clear, and every time we turn on the news, it seems to be that there's something new or something that's changed, and you can't really find solid ground And so we're always being watched in how we live. And so what we need to do as believers is go to the Lord consistently, actively, in prayer, asking for wisdom. So that we can walk rightly before those who are watching and lurking. And the good news is that God in his generosity gives wisdom to those who ask. Look at James 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, and that's all of us, we, we need wisdom. Let him ask God, who gives generously. See, God isn't rationing out wisdom just as much as you need. He's giving it generously, and so we ask him for wisdom to all without reproach, and it will be given to him, We need wisdom so that we can walk rightly before those who watch in a way that is above reproach and honors the Lord. See, we're always being watched by those around us, but we also have a spiritual enemy that is watching, ready to accuse. Satan is a false witness like the enemies in verse 12. He stands before God like in the, the, the book of Job, accusing us, he, he comes and accuses our own hearts with a, a list as long as a grocery list of our sins and our failures. He's accusing us, bringing to remembrance all of the ways that we have failed and sinned. But the work of Christ is louder than those accusations. Look at Romans 8, verse 33 to 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. But why? Because it is God who justifies. He's justified us. He's made us right before the law. There's no one that can bring any charge. And another question. It's a rhetorical again. Who is to condemn? No one. Why? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He paid the price he died, more than that, who was raised, meaning that, that the price that he paid was enough. That's why he rose from the grave. Who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus Christ, the son of God, is interceding for us even now. The, the voices that tempt us to, to despair the, the voice of accusation and condemnation find no ground because Jesus Christ intercedes for us before the father presenting us as blameless because of his own work see the hymn before the throne it's, it's one of my favorite hymns I was reminded of it by a good friend this week says this puts, puts this truth in such a beautiful way in its second verse when Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on Jesus Christ and pardon me. The voice of condemnation and accusation find no ground because Jesus Christ has pardoned us with his life. And to the unbeliever, you may look at the believer and and see that we continue to sin and fall and ask, what's different about us? Well, the accusations that stand against us and find ground because they are true Because of Jesus Christ and his work and his grace, the believer isn't condemned. Instead, because of his grace, in response to all the love we've been shown, as an act of gratitude, we we seek to grow. And that same grace that has saved us, the same grace that, that silences the accuser, is available to all who trust and believe. The call is to repent and believe. So we actively wait. How? By praying. We ask for God to answer our requests, but we also ask him for guidance and for wisdom. That's how we wait, but we can wait on the Lord. Why? Because we know the Lord is good. Because we know that the Lord is good. Look at verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David is confident that he will see and experience the goodness of God. And it's this confidence that he'll experience the goodness of God that causes him to endure in his waiting. The the NASB translates this verse this way. Verse 13, I would have despaired had I, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have despaired. I would have given up. There's a footnote, if you have the ESV, that also says, Oh, had I not believed that I would have seen the goodness of God in the land of the living. David says that the goodness of God is what causes him to endure. And that's, that was our big takeaway. The goodness of God is the fuel for waiting that is active and enduring. But the question we need to ask is, what is goodness? What is goodness? Kevin DeYoung defines it this way. Divine goodness is the overflowing bounty of God by which he who receives nothing and lacks nothing communicates blessing to his creation And to his creature. So God needs nothing and requires nothing. It's the same thing that Paul says in in Romans. Who who can counsel him and or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? God needs nothing and receives nothing, but he gives all his blessing to his creation. God's goodness is the opposite of harshness and cruelty. To experience divine goodness is to enjoy the sweetness, friendliness, benevolence, and generosity of God. Goodness is the broader category encompassing several of God's moral attributes. What Kevin DeYoung is saying is the word that we use as goodness actually shows up in different ways. It's it's like a a diamond. When you hit it with a light, it disperses into many different beams of, of color. And the same is true with goodness. We experience it in different ways. God's goodness to those in misery we call mercy. His goodness to forbear with those deserving judgment we call patience. And his goodness to those who are guilty we call grace. The psalmist in Psalm 119 puts it even more simply saying about God's goodness, you are good and you do good. See, the goodness of God isn't like a winter jacket that we put on and take off whenever we want. The goodness of God isn't something that God puts on himself or an attribute that he chooses to use at one time and not in another. The goodness of God is part of his very nature. And like his nature, the goodness of God is eternal. It lasts forever and like his nature, it's immutable. It doesn't change. God simply is goodness. See, this doctrine helps us in a number of ways. One, it's a warning to those who sin and do evil. Because God's goodness is part of his very nature, it would be inconsistent with himself to let evil and injustice and sin go unpunished. A judge that lets criminals go unpunished is not a good judge. So God in his goodness punishes evil and sin. See, the the goodness of God is actually a terrifying thing for those who sin and do evil. And yet, for us, it gives us great confidence that God's goodness is unchanging. Because God's goodness is part of his nature. He's good all the time because his nature doesn't change. See, there's a saying, God is good all the time, and then you'd respond all the time, God is good. There's no changing in his goodness towards us. That means we can be sure that the goodness that we've experienced as believers in the cross of Christ will never be taken back. We're not gonna stand before God one day unsure whether or not his goodness will be enough. Or it would have lasted long enough. But his unchanging goodness is real confidence for us. See, this goodness of God isn't just a theological idea for David. Look at verse 13 again. Look how long, look look where he expects to see the goodness of God. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. Where? In the land of the living. So in, in this life, David is confident not only that, that the goodness of God is this grand theological idea that he knows to be true, but he knows that he will experience his goodness in this life. It's, a, it's the same reason why David earlier in Psalm 23 verse 6 can say this, surely the goodness and mercy of the Lord shall follow me all the days of my life. David, again, in Psalm 23, is sure not only that he'll see goodness at the end, but he experiences it every day of his life. Well, how do we experience God's goodness? Well, God shows his goodness to us, to everyone, unbelievers and believers. We experience the goodness of God in in his kindness towards us through all of the, the common gifts that he gives to humanity. Think of it, marriage. Children, friendship, good food, laughter, medicine. God gives these good things to us indiscriminately. Unbelievers, believers. But in his goodness, he also displays it to us, especially the saints, through the work of Jesus Christ. Think of what he's done for us in Jesus through the cross. Regeneration, we have a new heart justification we stand right before his law adoption we've been counted as part of his family sanctification we're being made more and more holy glorification we'll we'll see him in the end and and hope for this life all of these good things have been given to us and we experience it day by day all the days of our life see the goodness of God is the unshakable foundation upon which David stands and makes all of his prayer requests. That's why David can say earlier in verse 9, "O oh, you who have been my help," or again in verse 9, "O oh God of my salvation." See, God has been a, a helper to him in the past and has saved him from troubles before. So he's sure that because God is good, he doesn't change, he'll, he'll help him and save him again. And God's goodness is why he can say in verse 10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. See, that phrase, forsaken me, is a phrase that we hear again later in Matthew. And we hear it out of the mouth of Jesus himself. While he's hanging on the cross, he says this. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Say we are able to say the Lord has taken me in because and we're able to say that and experience the goodness of God and the sweetness of, of fellowship with him because Jesus, the son of God, was forsaken in our place. So we can say that. We can say the Lord has taken me in. And because the Lord has taken me in, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we live towards one another and it changes the way we live towards those who are watching, unbelieving neighbors. It changes the way we live towards one another because the same way that Christ has welcomed us, we welcome one another. See, right now we need to be creative in the ways that we love one another because the, the reality is the one another's of the New Testament haven't ceased to bear weight on us as believers. Body, life, life, in the, in the church has not stopped. And we need to be creative whether that means we, we video call or make a, a phone call or visit someone on their porch or go for a walk outside. I know it's cold, but we need to be creative because the life of the church body hasn't stopped. We welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. But in the same way that we haven't been abandoned, in the same way that we can say the Lord has taken me in, we should look for ways to show our unbelieving neighbors that they haven't been abandoned. It's a hard time not just for the church, it's a hard time for everybody. And so we should be looking for ways to to show our unbelieving neighbors the love of Christ, the welcome that we have experienced, the fact that we haven't been abandoned. We show them a taste of that how do we do that we care for their businesses we we shop local we support the businesses that are struggling to, to go but we also we appeal the government not just for ourselves we don't appeal the government just so that we can meet we appeal the government so that our unbelieving brothers and sisters don't feel like they've been abandoned see because we have been taken in we are able to welcome one another brothers and sisters in Christ but also show our unbelieving neighbors that they haven't been abandoned. It changes how we live towards one another. See, this goodness of God experienced in everyday life, that's what helps us to actively wait on the Lord with endurance. See, David is waiting. He's waiting for the temple. He's waiting to be able to go in and and worship the Lord with God's people. That's the one thing he is waiting for. But as he's waiting, he's not passive. He's not twiddling his thumbs, just sitting there. But he's actively waiting by praying. And and as he prays, he endures in his waiting because he's confident that God will be good to him. That as he makes those prayers, that they, they, they don't land on deaf ears, but that God hears them and will answer them in his timing. But that desire that David has to be in the temple in fact isn't fulfilled in his lifetime. If you read the history of Israel, in fact the temple that David longs for isn't built even until his son Solomon builds it after his death. See the temple that David waits for that Solomon builds would eventually go on to be destroyed. But in the ultimate display of God's goodness Jesus comes, the good news in flesh, God tabernacles amongst us, God with us, and that's what we celebrated just a few weeks ago. And those who trust in the work of Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit, sealed with the Holy Spirit, becoming, as a community of believers, the temple of God. See, we we started off saying we're all waiting for something, But the ultimate thing that we are waiting for is the return of Jesus Christ who is coming to to make all things right, to to gather his people and to consummate his kingdom. Titus chapter 2 says it this way, for the grace of God has appeared. And remember the grace of God, that's the language we use for the goodness of God that's given to those who are guilty. So the grace of God or his goodness towards the guilty has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So The goodness of God changes how we live now, but it also helps us wait, right? It helps us to live godly lives in the present age, but also it helps us waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. See, the goodness of God helps us to live rightly now, but also to wait for his return. All those things that we, we wait for and that we long for, the, the longing to regather will be fulfilled in, in that time, united together with Jesus Christ forever. The longing to, to fill those voids of ho- loneliness will be fulfilled in Christ with friendship with God and his presence forever. That that longing to go back to work because we're worried about finances, we trust that every spiritual blessing is hidden in Christ and there waits for us heavenly treasure that will not rot. And then we wait for this virus to be over. But when we get to heaven, Jesus comes and he wipes every tear away. That there will be no more suffering, no more death, and no more disease. See, do we, do we truly believe this? That God in his goodness will uphold his word and, and cause Christ to return quickly. Because when we do, we won't be just waiting passively. We're going we're gonna to pray for his return. That was a, a convicting question for me. Do I pray for Christ to return? I I believe he'll return, but do I pray for him to return? See, the goodness of God that we trust that he, he will fulfill his promises and uphold his word is the fuel for waiting that's active and enduring. And so if we trust the goodness of God, we will actively pray, we'll pray for him to answer, we'll pray for guidance, and we'll pray for him to return. And because he is good, we will endure relying on his word. Let's pray together. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word that reminds us of all the things that we need from you. Your word reminds us of the call to wait upon you actively on your word. Actively in prayer, it calls us to, to wait with endurance because of your goodness. And so we pray that as we, we've we heard your word, that you would cause your spirit to, to, to plant these truths deep in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. We don't want to simply believe things about you, but we want to wait on you actively through prayer. So even as we're praying right now, would you cause... These truths to to take deep root. Help us to truly believe them. Answer our prayers. Give us wisdom in the way we walk. Help us to trust your goodness. Would you come quickly to gather your church, to usher in your kingdom, to make all things right? We trust that you will do this all in your timing, but as we wait, We will pray, help us to do that in the power of your spirit. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit HopeTorontoNorth.com.